0: Predictions are dangerous. We absolutely need more inventory. The Fed doesn't actually have a lot of tools to regulate inflation. That
1: cash has dried up. Wow, is my first thought, Bruce. If both parties don't win, it doesn't happen. The Real Look, trending news. Today is Wednesday, November 15th. I'm Bruce Hardy. And I'm Chase Williams. And this is the news you need to know. Well, Chase, uh, Commission lawsuits are piling up in the wake of the Sitzer Burnett verdict. The number of lawsuits has rapidly multiplied, putting more pressure than ever on the real estate status quo. In general, the allegations in many of the cases are similar, raising antitrust concerns and claiming that major real estate players, both private companies and industry trade groups, are conspiring together to keep fees high. So I want to run through these, if I could, Chase, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation around them. You know, some of these have been termed copycat lawsuits, and I believe that that's a big piece of it. So the first one, obviously, is sitzer Burnett. I know we reported on that last week, but it went to trial in October in Missouri, and a jury ultimately ruled in favor of the home seller plaintiffs in the case, agreeing that the National Association of Realtors and various large franchisors conspired to keep commissions high. At issue was NAR's cooperative compensation rule, also known as the participation rule, which requires listing brokers to make an offer of compensation to buyer brokers in order to submit a listing to a realtor-affiliated MLS. Now, the next lawsuit that's sort of hanging out there is the Merle case. That case revolves around the same issues raised in Sitza Burnett, the participation rule, as well as the claim that NAR and the same group of franchisors have conspired to keep agent commissions and consumer costs high. Now, the case is playing out in Illinois and is expected to go to trial next year. Here's the first so-called copycat case, and it's called Gibson, named after the lead plaintiff. And it was filed immediately in the wake of Sitza Burnett on October 31st of this year. The same legal team that represented the home seller plaintiffs in Sitza Burnett filed the case mere minutes after the verdict, no less. But it names a new group of defendants, Compass, EXP World Holdings, Redfin, Wycott Realtors, United Real Estate, Howard Hanna Real Estate, Douglas Elliman, and the National Association of Realtors, again. Now, the Missouri-based suit promises to be much bigger than either Sitza Burnett or Merle in terms of scope. It seeks class action status on behalf of, get this, Chase of all persons who listed properties on a multiple listing service in the United States using a listing agent or broker-affiliated with the corporate defendants and who paid a buyer broker commission from October 31st, 2019 until present. Now, there are another two cases called Batten, again named after the lead plaintiff, and there's Batten 1 and Batten 2. Now, Batten 1 is especially significant because unlike Sitzer, Burnett, Merle, and Gibson, it involves home buyer plaintiffs, not sellers. Now, the New Jersey-based case was originally known as Leader after its first lead defendant. A judge, however, dismissed the case in May of 22, but the buyer plaintiffs then filed an amended complaint in July of 2022, bringing it back to life. Another home buyer, Maya Batten, became the lead plaintiff at that time, hence the case's name, Batten. Now, the suit names as defendants, NAR, Anywhere, Home Services of America, and a pair of its affiliates the Long and Foster Companies, Remax, and Keller Williams. Now, motions to dismiss this suit are currently pending. Then that leads us to Batten 2. Now, Maya Batten and other consumers filed another antitrust lawsuit on November 2nd. Now, this case is brand new, but right now is seeking class action status and names as defendants, Compass, EXP World Holdings, Redfin, Wykett, United Real Estate, Howard, Hannah, and Douglas Element. And this case is significant because, as with Batten One, it involves home buyers rather than sellers. And because it's potentially massive in scope, if the plaintiffs get their way, the class it represents could include consumers across the US who bought a house any time between 1996 and the present. Another case that's just come out on November 6th is Burton, yet another brand new antitrust case filed in the wake of Sitza in South Carolina. Now, like other similar cases, the main policy the Burton suit challenges is NAR's participation rule. Also, like other antitrust cases, the Burton complaint accuses the defendants of carrying out a conspiracy that ultimately inflates costs for consumers. And then, you know what, I'm done. I could go on reading. We have two more cases. Of course, you've got to throw in the DOJ case. Chase, what are your thoughts?
0: My thoughts are that there'll be another slew of lawsuits because those are just the ones that are in this particular article based on the timing of this recording. And this is all really fresh news since the original verdict in the Sitzer Burnett case. I guess my thought is this, Bruce, if you're a real estate professional listening to this podcast, I don't believe that you need to be an expert on every single case that's happening and what the exact details are of it or even who's named in it, to be frank. But what you better be an expert on is how to communicate your value to a client on either side of the transaction. You better be an expert on how to ask to be compensated for the value you're providing on either side of the transaction. And you better be comfortable with the concerns, questions, objections that the consumer would have when you're asking to be paid. That's what professionals do, Bruce. And the idea that this is going to impact the way we're paid, we'll see. It actually might not by and large, but it might. We just don't know. There's more questions than there are answers. But there's no question about the fact that people who are professionals and act like professionals and operate like professionals and are trained to be professionals and get really intentional about how they're compensated and get really comfortable and confident in why they're compensated are going to thrive regardless of any changes that happen and those that choose the alternative which is acting like an amateur or sticking your head in the sand or just being worried 24/7 not being able to do those same things are going to struggle and are at risk of potentially not being in the industry anymore and i don't know how i can see it any more plainly than that bruce but although changes might be on the horizon professionals are still going to earn incredible living and have a massive opportunity around commissions or whatever it may be in the real estate industry because frankly the consumer desires to have professional representation in what, for most of them, is the largest sale or purchase of their lifetime. And that's not going to change just because there's a whole bunch of greedy lawyers who think that this is an opportunity for a money grab.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think your advice there is, is spectacular. Unfortunately, there is a lot of people out there giving predictions about what's going to happen to the industry. As of the end of last week, I think there were over 260 articles published online. All conflicting, right? None of us individually can impact what's going on with these lawsuits. What we can control is what we do and what we know and how we present our value. So I agree with you. And I think that that's outstanding. Now, by the way, we'd be remiss if we didn't say that the Sitza Burnett case is going through appeal. We won't know the full repercussions of Sitza Burnett. You know, you can tell by the timing of all of these other lawsuits, the attorneys saw an opportunity. And they think, well, heck, if this case sticks, we have an opportunity to extract some blood as well. It doesn't feel good. It feels like we're being trolled by these guys, these attorneys who are just looking for a payday. But it is what it is. Take Chase's advice, it's outstanding advice.
0: The other thing, too, Bruce, just to help calm everyone down, if you have a level of concern, I think we all have some level of concern just because there's still some unknown here, is that oftentimes something that looks massively disruptive. Right, doesn't end up having the same impact that it's originally portrayed to be. Think about when the internet and MLS and all the access to every listing became available to the consumer, right? The realtor was no longer the gatekeeper. And how many realtors back then thought that was just going to be the end of the world as they knew it, the end of the industry? And it was quite the opposite, by the way. So that's just one example. And so, again, I'm not suggesting that we stick our heads in the sand. But I am suggesting that we focus on what we can control. We go about serving our clients at the highest level while all this shakes out.
1: Compass trims losses and improves their cash flow despite a, a Q3 revenue dip. In fact, Compass saw revenue fall 10% year over year, but also managed to cut its net losses from $154 million in the third quarter of last year. I do remember us reporting on that. To 39 million, which represents a significant improvement, and Compass said that they had a positive free cash flow of 12 million dollars, and that's on an operating cash flow of 15 million, and it remains on track to be free cash flow positive for the entirety of 2023. So, you know, as you hear this news, Chase, I mean, what's going through your mind? There were a lot of big promises made by Compass.
0: All right, Bruce, I'm going to give you exactly what's going through my mind. When you have to use terms like free cash flow positive instead of profitable, it means you're not making any damn money. And losing $39 million is still losing a crap ton of money. And it's kind of like saying, you know, I was bleeding profusely, but now I'm just bleeding steadily. Is it improved? I guess it's still not very good. You know, and let's just bear in mind, Bruce, that the reason why Compass is able to lose less money is because they've dramatically cut their expenses in some of the key areas that they said made them a differentiator, i.e. technology. So Mm -hmm. they've cut a huge amount of investment into building technology. They've gone with something off the shelf. It makes them look more and more like an everyday brokerage as we would know it, which is probably why their stock price is sub $2.
1: These earning calls, right, are, there's a lot of salesmanship going on here. In fact, Robert Refkin, the CEO, also spoke of a housing market defined by macroeconomic uncertainty, though he was bullish about his own firm's position, noting that it was poised for even greater success when the market improves. But, well, that's an interesting statement. So you blame the market, but hey, you know what? We're going to be so good when we get there. That $39 million, by the way, Chase, was one quarter was three months. So that's losing $13 million a month. What was interesting about this, because he did have to address questions around the Sitzer Burnett lawsuit, right? He said, you know, Compass was not involved in that case, but it has been named as a defendant in a similar and newly filed lawsuit, which we just talked about, from that same legal team. Now, during the call, Refkin declined to comment on the cases themselves but argued that Compass is well-positioned and prepared for any changes that might come to the real estate industry, because Compass tends to operate in the luxury space where buyers are likely to still want agents. Compass agents typically have clients sign buyer-broker agreements, and Compass provides a variety of specialized tools and technology for both agents and their clients. I mean, come on, jazz hands? All clients need representation, right? whether it's the upper end or not. I thought that was interesting that they typically have clients signed by a broker agreements.
0: I'd like to see the stats on that, Bruce. But you know, the reality is, and merging two stories together here just for a second, that is best practice in my opinion, right? And so across any company, you should be thinking as if you are going to represent someone as a professional and that you're gonna actually formalize your representation of them, I think is not a new concept. Even though maybe not every agent is, you know, doing that consistently in their business, it is best practice. And I'll give Robert one thing, Bruce. He's a very optimistic guy for how much money his company's lost thus far. And I can appreciate that. You kind of need to be in that particular role. And, you know, he's speaking into the folks that he leads in terms of like the opportunities ahead and being well positioned, kind of be even more concerned if he was saying something different than that. Certainly, plenty of jazz hands can go along with these earnings reports, and this is probably no different.
1: I just have to share, because I thought this was really fascinating. During the investor call, he also noted that demand has fallen thanks to high mortgage rates. Uh, That'd be a da, And he repeatedly mentioned uncertainty in both the present and near future. However, he also said the market is currently behaving much the way it was last year at this time. And he added that we're all holding tight and hoping mortgage rates become more reasonable. Wow, that's a strategy.
0: <laughs> yeah, hope is not a strategy.
1: <laughs> well, Chase, talk about disruptors, right? I mean, Compass was gonna be a disruptor, but hey, the iBuyers, actually sliding farther from hyped market disruption. I'm gonna quote a couple of slides that both Offerpad and Open Door used in their presentations to investors when they were looking to go public via SPAC, back in 2020. In fact, OfferPad Solutions, Inc. said significant untapped growth potential. This was back in 2020. Now OfferPad is an instant buyer or an iBuyer, a company that gives sellers cash offers for their homes and attempts to resell the homes for a profit, sometimes after making renovations. The slide presented in March of 2021 forecasted that Offerpad would sell nearly 15,000 homes in 2023. In reality, Offerpad has sold fewer than 3,000 homes through the first three quarters of the year, which is about a fifth of the projection for the entire year. And I love this. Open Door said in their 2020 investors presentation, the largest undisrupted market in the US, right, as they were talking about real estate. Open Door Presentation projected sales of more than 37,500 homes in 2023. The actual results for the first three quarters were about 16,500, which is less than half of its projection for the year. And that's according to its earnings report last week. So what thinks you of this around the disruptive buyers?
0: Well, you know how I feel about projections, Bruce, and typically projections in an investor call when you're trying to raise money tend to be even more wildly inaccurate than others for obvious reasons. I do think that it's a good reminder to those of us that have been in business for quite some time that whether you're pretending to be a disruptor or hoping to be a disruptor or you're just starting a good old-fashioned business that's similar to something that's been around for a while. You start thinking about pro formas and projections, and, and those things eventually meet reality. And reality doesn't always show up exactly like we hoped it would. And certainly the change in the market conditions were nothing that these two companies were hoping for. They got a lot of press early on, and here we are. You know, I don't know what the percentage of total home sales that represents from iBuyer, Bruce, but it's got to be close to negligible in terms of a total transaction standpoint.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, you know, you think about it when Open Door and Offerpad sort of started ramping up, we saw everybody rush to that space, right? It was going to be the new next thing. And you saw Zillow and Redfin dive in deep, only to have them exit out of that business after bleeding gobs of red ink, right? And when they were in there, iBuyers represented just over 1% of all home sales. Today, they represent of existing home sales. And that's through the first nine months of the year. What I find really interesting, while home sales are down nationwide in 2023, due to the high mortgage rate environment, sales data suggests that the aspiring disruptors, high buyers, are losing ground to the industry stalwarts, right? So we're seeing the legacy real estate companies are still out there, gaining that lion's share of the business and actually getting more of that business back from the iBuyers that took it in that crazy hot market that we were in.
0: It's tough to be a disruptor, Bruce. And when you're doing less than 1%, almost a half a percent of all transactions, you're not disrupting anything. And frankly, I think if you take the fancy eye off of the beginning of their name, then they would get a lot less press around something that's hardly affecting anyone, even in the markets they're most prominent. in. at this point, it's still such a small percentage. It's like saying my uncle Billy who buys houses down in Southern Louisiana is somehow impacting the national landscape of real estate. <laughs> it's just not the case. I don't mean that to be rude or anything. It's just It's tough to be a disruptor in any given industry and particularly in one where the consumer, the consumer, despite all these lawsuits we keep talking about, is very happy and satisfied with the way that they're being serviced in the industry. And the numbers prove that. The reports that we get and the interviews that are done with consumers every year prove that. So when you're trying to disrupt something you're usually looking for something that's not being done very well and improving upon it. In this case, it's being done very well. So it's that much harder to disrupt, even though there's billions of dollars in commissions to be had. And I think this is just another example of a company or several companies experiencing that.
1: Well, that's the news you need to know. Don't miss this Friday's Northern Lights episode, where we'll interview Aaron B. Thompson with Keller Williams Realty Bothell in Bothell, Washington. Thanks again for tuning in with us on The Real Look. This podcast is produced by Marissa Frost. Visit kwnwr.com to access the show notes from today's episode. Head over to Apple, Google, or Spotify, or really any major streaming platform, to subscribe and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for listening to The Real Look.